We treat everything as as if it needs an introduction at five years old, and then right. a little added to it at six years old, right. and then more at seven years old. And if if the child doesn't go through this assembly line, right, which has stations at each age, <laughs> and certain parts that need to be added at each age, somehow these gaps in knowledge that occur at these particular times at these particular ages, that this is something unrecoverable later on. You immediately want to assert your independence and be like, "Yeah, right, I guess you right. can. You can say all this to me, and you can sub- <laughs> subdue me here while I'm sitting in front <laughs> right. of you in this vulnerable position. But let me show you where the real power is. The, the real power is <laughs> right, completely right. ignoring you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I imagine plenty of students feel the, uh, a similar way. Welcome to the Unexamined Education. My name is Jonathan Ali, and as always, I'm joined by my friend Sean Dalrymple. In our conversations, we draw upon our experience as educators to gain insight into the essence of teaching and learning. We hope that our discussions inspire and benefit you, whether you are a teacher, administrator, student, parent, or anyone else that understands the importance of education in the life of the human being. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, John. Today, we wanted to talk about some of the anxiety that's becoming more intense around the concepts of learning loss and gaps in knowledge and what's traditionally been referred to also as the summer slide. And because we've been dealing with this global pandemic of COVID-19 for the past several months, and it's caused a big disruption in the way schools normally operate. And now we're in September of 2020 and schools are reopening. So it's a big concern is how much has this quarantine, this change in the way that schools run, classes going online, how much has this harmed the learning of children? Well, and I'm glad to get back to this because we brought it up in episode three and I felt like you know, when we published episode three, I was thinking we really dismiss something that's a widespread concern amongst educators and non-educators. And right. I thought <laughs> I brought it up to you. It's like maybe <laughs> we maybe we should point out that uh, we have a perspective on this and that we're not just blowing it off. So right. I'm, I, I certainly think it's it's right for us to go through this and, and, and really explore you know, how we've come to our, our uh, views on this and, and ultimately our, as you, as you might have picked up from episode three, complete dismissal of these concerns. <laughs> <This is laughs> right. Spoiler right. alert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that even before COVID and, and the shutdown and, and, and these things, there's one, one situation in particular that I would remember hearing this term learning loss frequently. It was on the radio I would be listening to public radio, and there was this sort of promotional thing for a, a program that parents could join over text. And it, basically, one of the reasons why parents should join that is so that they could get advice about how to continue learning over the summer to prevent summer learning loss. And I just had a kind of visceral reaction to this as I would be driving in my car, listening to this and hearing this. I don't know why, but I would really cringe and, and just feel like I didn't like the way that this idea of learning loss, the the impression of, of the process of learning that it gives. And at that point, I had really didn't put that much thought into it. I just knew and felt that, that this was, it contradicted a lot of assumptions and beliefs that I have about the process of learning and education. Yeah. And I mean, we should be, we should be fair, right? That, that they're not talking about nothing, right? Right. It's just that the, the thing that they're talking about rests on assumptions that neither one of us subscribe to or think are valid for authentic learning 
for a child. Right. So I think it would be good if we unpack these terms a little bit and try to figure yeah. out what is the what are the ideas that are working uh, in the background of, of, of these phrases, of these expressions? So what are the ideas that are working in the background of these expressions? Because I of think this rhetoric. You have this rhetoric. Uh, I think that just when you're when you hear the term learning loss or gap in knowledge, it seems like it's clear what it means. But but I think actually it's it's working on a metaphor or an analogy comparing learning to other things that have gaps and where those gaps compromise the integrity of that thing. Or other types of other situations where the quality or of something or the quantity of something might suffer loss, and how that that loss is is seen as as a real harm to occur to that to that thing. And so the question is: Is this a reasonable comparison? Right, a reasonable analogy to compare learning to to other things that suffer from having gap or other things that suffer from loss? Right, and we fall into we mentioned the pretty tired metaphor of the factory model because it starts to sound like industry and it's hard to it's hard to not go there when you start to really yeah. look at it prior to the show when we were talking you talked about it in terms of an assembly line and that if you're a worker on that assembly line and something broke down just prior to to when the product gets to you then you might be really frustrated because you can't do the, your job right and there's teachers everywhere, I think, who feel frustrated when a child comes to them and they don't have certain knowledge or skills that they expected them to have and they feel like they can't do their job now. Right, right. Because the system is broken somewhere prior to, to their station on the assembly line. Right. And and in this case, it's it's broken by summer or by six months of quarantine. Right, right, exactly. And so one of the solutions that if we compare, if we use the factory analogy in the assembly line, one of the solutions to summer learning loss and gaps in knowledge would be to not have breaks, to not have these long breaks. Just like in a factory, if you had <laughs> you had segments of the conveyor belt and assembly line where nothing was happening and there was a lot of potential during that time for the material, the product to fall off of the the conveyor belt, or you know, jostled uh, or jostled or or be damaged <laughs> in some way, you would say, "Why do we even have this? Why, you know, why this- do we have this three mile run of conveyor belt? Where, <laughs> right, where nothing is <laughs> <Exactly>. happening. <laughs> right." Um, and so, if you if you really believe that education is like that, then it makes sense to to question the need for something like a like a long break. Right. If you believe human beings are like that. <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. it makes sense. <laughs> right. But but right. you shouldn't think human beings are like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like I'm like done with this discussion now. <laughs> <laughs> if you think human beings are like that, then you will yeah. not get anything out of says, this conversation. <laughs> right. What if someone says that, okay, I don't think human beings are like that. There are plenty of dimensions of the human being for which the analogy of a factory and assembly line aren't appropriate. But when it comes to learning knowledge and skills, that it is appropriate. What would you say to someone making that point? I, w- I would say, why would it make sense there? I mean, if you're going to... <laughs> Let's just, I, I think if we, if schools were imparting the entirety of all data from all of the world into students, <laughs> right. Then, right. or all of the universe into students, then that would be one thing. But yeah. what schools are doing is, is they're picking a curriculum that has been deemed over time as the appropriate curriculum, which itself, the curriculum has enormous gaps in, right. in what could be taught Uh it, yeah. It's a very specific decision that that we make in education, 
and it seems uh, particularly concerned with skills that, yes, they might be useful in society, but for them to be acquired in this way seems, it seems counterintuitive to me. If you want someone to pick up a specific skill for society, then give that person, show that person a need for the skill in society. Right. Uh, They clearly at that point need to defend the assembly line. What are the knowledge and skills that you're so concerned about? Even if we accept, even if we accept that, that, that humans will be like a product on an assembly line. Well, now you have to defend right. what you're what you're putting into these students, right? And what you're leaving out. It Actually, might... that's the that's where the real defense needs to be. Why are you leaving out so many other things about being right. a human? Yeah, exactly. What about that learning loss? Yeah, right? the learning <laughs> the loss of opportunity to engage in what we've been calling authentic learning and sincere interest in things and self-directed learning. The the loss of that opportunity because a, a child's entire life is being dominated by this schedule of, of, you know, this curriculum that's been being imposed, which that's not to say, and like we discussed in, in episode three, it's not to say that everything about that curriculum is is questionable. For example, it's not questionable to consider literacy important, consider basic numeracy important, and basic knowledge about the, the world and, and how things work. But there's a, there's a big gap between that and the level of detail and programmed acquisition of, of particular knowledge and skills that we that we actually find in schools. And it's it's a sort of willful ignorance about the fact that there are so many ways that a person can become literate. There's so many ways that a person can become familiar with, with basic mathematics. There's so many different ways that a person could become knowledgeable about scientific information. And just to give one quick example... Although I, I just want to preface this by saying that it's a personal example, it's anecdotal and, and all of that. So I'm not, I don't mean this as proof, but just maybe for some people, it's hard to even believe that education and learning could happen in some other way. Although first, I would just challenge them to look at their own experience, because I think every I feel confident in claiming that every human being experiences for themselves how natural learning is and, and the superiority of learning through authentic interest. But like an, an example from my own experience is actually, or the, actually the experience of my son, is that he didn't go to school for the first five or six years of conventional schooling. And then we put him in a school and it was a Montessori school. And you could say he had, there were some gaps in knowledge based on the expectations of, of the program of that school. But on the other hand, he had had the opportunity to learn and focus on things that made, you know, in comparison with the other students made them seem like they had some serious gaps in knowledge because he was far more advanced in those things that he had a personal interest in, which were mostly things related to social studies like geography, like countries of the world and and, and these kinds of things that actually exposed gaps in my knowledge <laughs> as, an adult, as a college-educated adult. Right. Like the fact that a child who's eight years old, eight or nine years old, that his level of knowledge that he developed on his own can make an adult can expose gaps in knowledge of an adult right. who went through you know, organized schooling. That can tell us <laughs> something about what's going on. Right, because, because geography in schooling is, is a particular set of data that we right. deliver to students, and it doesn't touch the depth of the study, not even closely. It's, right. it's, it's a survey of geography. 
is what it is. Right. Right. And it's usually a one semester course. <laughs> it's like considered of a, I would say, of lesser value in most schools, uh, less lesser importance. Like, oh, right. well, if that's not on your transcript, no big deal. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the number of times where young people have told me things that they know that I have no knowledge on is, I mean, it, it's there's it's a lot of times. I was going to say it's countless, but I suppose right. I suppose I could count them up. I just can't remember them all. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> when we've talked about this too, it's like we we also set up school in this way that's kind of bizarre because we stretch out something over the course of years that would take yeah. a motivated learner four to six weeks to learn. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We treat it, uh, yeah. We treat everything as as if it needs an introduction at five years old, and then right. a little added to it at six years old, right. and then more at seven years old. And if if the child doesn't go through this assembly line, right, which has stations at each age, <laughs> and certain parts that need to be added at each age, somehow these gaps in knowledge that occur at these particular times at these particular ages that this is something unrecoverable later on. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really one of those things where I, I think it's more appropriate to draw analogies between one human endeavor and another human endeavor. And so I, I brought this up, I think, in a previous episode, uh, connecting how we do things in physical education versus mental education, which I think are way more analogous than yeah. a factory line, you know, a factory assembly line is to a human. Right. And and what I would say is if someone if if you get a thirteen year old who shows up and has never played basketball before, but really wants to play basketball, is kind of a physical person, likes to do things, uh, you know, jogging or whatever and does other sports. Right. Okay, so you take that person and that person really wants to learn basketball. It's not going to take long at all for that person to learn basketball. Now, right. if you take if you take someone who is who's not very physical and doesn't already participate in other sports, but that person wants to learn basketball, then yeah, he will be slower to learn basketball because he'll have to acquire other skills first. He'll have to acquire certain coordination that probably comes more easily to the, the person who's uh, already active uh, in sports. But if that person's motivated, he'll go right through that and he'll he'll need time to develop. And importantly, he'll need rest to develop. He'll right. need to not yeah. his his day won't be OK. <laughs> train, go go jogging for like 20 hours or I guess I don't <laughs> need to be ridiculous, but let's go jogging right. for eight hours and then and then go home and jog more for another four hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and then make sure you go to sleep early, uh, which you know obviously wouldn't be a problem then because tomorrow we're doing the same thing. You know, right. you you would never rush. You never feel like you had to rush a person who's doing that. You would you would be patient with a person who's trying to do that. Right. You would be patient to let that yeah. person develop and build up the the skills and the coordination needed to do something that that is well beyond his abilities but he wants to learn right there is a situation where you would rush that person and that's if there's a competition coming up or <laughs> right. that person is <laughs> right. going to be assessed assessed right. according to someone's expectations and in those cases his interest in learning is going to be much less of a factor the the question is is going to it's going to be like someone's expecting you to know how to play basketball right <laughs> right and and they're going to expect that you know how to do it on this particular date 
And so we need to get ready for that. Right. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter if you want to learn it or not. You have to know it. You have to know how to play basketball. And in that case, it would be become much more of an issue of the, the scheduling of it, making sure that you're not wasting time, making sure that it's happening really efficiently, making sure that there's no learning loss, that there's no gaps in their skills. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you're going to look at the assessment and you're going to say, this is what they're going to look for. Yeah. And you better have these things. And actually, those things that they're not going to look for don't matter. Right. right? In fact, <laughs> so, in fact, your assessed, your assessment isn't even going to be a basketball game. It's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be Drills. run through all of the skills that you should have learned but you want to actually apply those skills in a game. It's going to be isolated from a game. Um, right, right. <laughs> and you can imagine that person at the end, after passing the assessment, really still not, not being able to participate in a game of basketball. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because he only had to get focused on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, this, I don't know why, I, but I feel like there's resistance to thinking about students' mental activity the same way we think about it in terms of their physical activity. Like it would, yeah. we all would see it as crazy to go through something like that. And uh, we would all see it yeah. as crazy to expect every 13 year old to show up being able to play basketball at the same skill level. We all right. understand that it's going to be completely dependent upon their natural desires and their natural abilities. And we're going to address them as they, as they are motivated to learn. Right. But for some <laughs> for some reason we can't seem to make that connection and and my I myself have, have found resistance from just discussing these things over time. Is that like, oh no, there's something different right. going on with with mental activity. Right. I think one thing at work that is good in its intention is a desire for an egalitarianism. Yeah. Because I, I think you would say when it comes to physical abilities, our society is less concerned that that everyone has the opportunity to acquire those abilities. But when it comes to academic, mental professional like knowledge and skills, we have to make sure that, that everyone gets to a, a, a good enough result that they're, they're not at a disadvantage in comparison to, to others in the society. And disadvantage in terms of earning an income, in terms of opportunities if they want to continue studying. And, and this is, a, I, I think, a very legitimate concern because societies that were less concerned about this throughout history, there would probably be a, a definite class structure where some people, the higher classes receive an education and they have access to those opportunities and lower classes don't and their choices in life become very limited. And I think this is definitely something working as an assumption in education. And, you know, so I just want to point out that if, if you know, if, uh, if this is occurring in the minds of of any of our listeners don't get the impression that we're against that, you know, or, or we think that there's yeah. some classes, there's some people in society that deserve an education and they can benefit from an education. And then there's others who just need to go do manual labor or something like that. Right. It, it, and you're right. And thank you for pointing that out. I would say a lot of a lot of the times the pushback is in terms of this noble aspiration towards an egalitarian society. Yeah. <laughs> However, right. So the, the the question is is a question of how do how do you how do how you are actually we doing? allow human beings? <laughs> yeah. How are we exactly the question that you asked uh, before, which I agree is is really appropriate here. Yeah. What are the results? And and can can people be forced to achieve their potential? Because I think actually what we're talking about is we're talking about the potential of the human being. Right. And the potential of each individual. You don't want any individual to be limited by external factors, limited from achieving their potential. And however that potential is defined, whether in terms of knowledge, in terms of their character, 
in terms of the work that they can do in their life, you know, the happiness that they can have, whatever it is. We don't want the system itself to to limit a human being's potential because we could definitely say that this is a form of injustice. So the, the question is, the human potential, what is the nature of human potential and what's the nature of, of the flourishing of human potential, right? Is it, is it through a factory or is it through a system that is more attuned to individuality and freedom and choice and interest right. and curiosity? Yeah. And this goes back to something we said before. The society that we live in, we aspire towards those things. If we aspired toward other things, then we should treat it like a factory. If there was an expectation in our society that everyone is not equal but the same, then a factory model makes perfect sense. And in fact, a factory model of education that is specifically designed to encourage the perspective that everyone is the same. But again, we keep we always have to remember that we want this equality idea, which is not sameness. And we want liberty and individuality, which which are not sameness. And so we have to approach things according to those. And there's a there's a subtle interplay there. And I, I, I don't think you can easily say that equality and sameness are not <laughs> are not the same or are not equal. You have to investigate <laughs> right. that. You have to understand where, you know, what do we mean by, by saying equality is different from sameness? Right, right. You know, this is one of those things that we can we can think about in terms of different societies. And our society is founded upon complex interplay between high ideals that don't necessarily all get along. Right. Right. Yeah. Another way of putting it, I, I think, is is the way we treat children should reflect the values of our of our society because we're expecting those children to absorb those values and those priorities and and continue that legacy of founding a society based on those values. Right. But I feel like it's kind of we treat children in a way, and I don't want to exaggerate or, or talk into terms that are too extreme. But we do treat children in a way where it's like we feel that the human being has dig- has dignity and has potential and is deserving of respect. And that's why we believe in the rights of the individual and we believe that in things like equality and, and justice. But when we look at children, we see almost – and forgive me for using these kinds of – we see a subhuman, right? Right. We see someone someone who has the potential of, of becoming a human, but we see ourselves, the the adults of this of the society, kind of see themselves as realized human beings, right? And the children as unrealized human beings. Now, in, in a lot of ways, there's truth to that in the sense of like there's a maturation process that needs to take to take place. Children need to grow. They're not adults, obviously, right? And there's a difference between adults and, and children. But the question is for the children to become fully realized human beings which I don't know if we have that many of those <laughs> in our society, you know, actually, I'm including myself in that. But yeah, let's say, it's, it's, because I believe the, the potential the potential of the human being is, is much greater than, yeah, is much greater than what we see around us <laughs> currently. But if we see the children as that, the question is, is this something that our society can manufacture in them, right? Like that we can create them, you know, like we can produce Right. Like they're the raw materials for that and society is going to mold and shape them in, into their potential. Right. Or is it something that's lying dormant, let's say, or, or even maybe not dormant is not the right word, but it's something that's, that's a potential inside the child that needs to flourish. Right. So it's kind of the difference, not to get too poetic here, <laughs> but instead of comparing it to a factory, 
comparing education to a garden. Right. Right. Where it, it's not like the gardener is, is going, you know, he plants a seed and then he has to manually pull the, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, here's where, you know, my lack of terminology for gardening. <laughs> yeah. <is going> to <laughs> yeah. I can tell immediately that you don't do much gardening. <laughs> right, yeah. 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 But, but he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to manually like pull out the plant from the seed. Right. Right. And shape, shape the plant. Of course, there's some pruning involved and in, in things like that. Um, right. But, but it's you not, a, watch it's not for a case diseases. Where, you know, right, yeah. You have to provide an environment that's conducive to the growth of that plant and the flourishing of that plant, and and there is some interaction between the gardener and 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 the plant. But it's not like the the gardener is not not manufacturing the plant. This potential of growth and and what the plant is going to become is all contained within the plant. And right. and and the gardener himself might not even know what's the potential of this plant, like what the full flourishing of this plant would look like. He's just a participant in facilitating that. You know, if we compare this to a factory where they're creating these plastic plants, of course, there's a whole design and, and the, the result is exactly what the manufacturer and the, the designer and creator of that plant has in mind. And it's that plant is limited to that. It's not even a plant. It can't grow. It can't flourish. It can't do anything. Right. And right. and I think our system of school is more like we're we're making fake plants, right? Then we're gardening, right? And then we're, <laughs> and then we're planting the fake plants into real soil, and <laughs> right? And they look exactly the same twenty years later, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we better I like stop here, or else this analogy is going to break down too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's at least something new. Uh, I mean, it's right, not yeah. new, new, but it's it's. it's, it's it escapes the, the, the rhetoric that we've been stuck in with the industry. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, I have to, you know, just for my own integrity, I have to give a lot of credit to Maria Montessori for shaping my thinking in terms of this, uh, because it, I think the the place that I found the best expression of, of this kind of, these kind of ideas, which again, are not original to her either. It's, it's, a, it's not a new way of thinking about education and the raising of children and training of children or whatever, but the best expression that I found in it, which helps for me to, to crystallize my own thinking about it, is in the writings of Maria Montessori. So I just wanted to give that credit where credit is due. Yeah. I, I do think while you were discussing uh, the, the garden and the plastic plant and all of that, I, I started to think, like, it made me wonder. I, I know there's people out there so <laughs> that that would be like, nothing's wrong with education. And it started to make me right. think, like... And, and now we're now we're comparing uh, people who go through education and and are happy with it. Now we're saying that they are uh, happy with their polymer <laughs> artificial <laughs> existences, right. which they might <laughs> object to it being characterized. Which, which they, right, they might object to, and I think quite fairly. And and I'm starting right. to think like, what is it that what is it that that works so well for some people? Because I think some people are are well serviced by the way the way things go now, and I think, but I think what it is, what it comes down to, is the real human experience and an important human experience of solidarity with mm-hmm. with others who go through the same thing, and and I I would be willing to bet that when when people look back on the the high school or middle school or even elementary school years with great fondness is probably more to do with the community of people that are surrounding them and the genuine human interactions that they're having and probably has less to do with the formulaic way in which education is, 
is put to people, but but that that formulaic mode of feeding students a certain curriculum in a certain way at a certain pace that does yeah. build <laughs> some community because all of these students are there together going through this grind and right. that's a significant experience and i would say it's a real human right. experience uh, and one that yeah. we should realize schools are successfully <laughs> they're successfully <laughs> right. pulling it off for some uh, for some right. people where right. where solidarity is important i think the way we're doing things does work but i also think it drives this what i think is a misfocused attempt at education it drives it generation after generation because then people who find that that experience was important want their kids to go through that experience so that they can have a connection with their kids yeah and i think it's it's difficult to withdraw from that and say no no more of this like we need to build relationships with our kids in other ways not by shared experience of the of the grind of school. Right. Yeah, what it is and this is I found that in conversations with people about something that has a, a status quo which people successfully navigate and they come out they survive it, right? They come out whole <laughs> on the other end, although that's something that can be evaluated. They will defend it on the basis of it being a rite of passage. Right. Right. Yeah. And and a system where it's a system of paying your dues. So that you you earn the right to come out on the other end and you earn the right to to be someone who has graduated from that and and completed that that trial time of life, that (laughs) trial. Yeah, it's a trial that that you go through. It's like a a rite of passage, basically. Right. And so every anything that that's a rite of passage is going to have some nominal value just based on it being that right? right that 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 people are going to defend. And and I think in any case where someone wants to come and point out the flaws in this or how it could be better or it's not really serving the purpose that it's designed to serve or, or purported to serve, they're going to come up against this resistance because rites of passage tend to be romanticized. They tend to, to like you said, they, they create a sense of solidarity that all of us did it, right? right? And if you want to be one of us, you have to go through this too. right? And also another way this is expressed is, okay, if education's so bad, then how did you turn out okay, right? And, and look at me. I love I still love learning and I went through this education system and right so on and so forth. And one thing that I uh, I like to remember in order to uh put this in perspective is actually inspired by the movie Jurassic Park where uh <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's character the the scientist mathematician I forget exactly what he is. I think he's an expert in in uh chaos theory, right? Is that Yeah, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, he he has a famous line obviously that that life will find a way. Yeah. Right. That whatever mechanisms you put in place to try to prevent the the natural you know in this case evolutionary or or reproductive forces the force of life will find a way to to overcome those right yeah. and so yeah. my version of this is learning will find a way <laughs> that learning is such an intrinsic natural powerful force powerful impulse that it doesn't matter how bad the education system is learning will find a way now, the process that's in place can limit the the potential of learning quite a bit, but that doesn't mean that no learning is going to happen or that people aren't going to still find a way to love learning and enjoy learning and, and learn things authentically. And this is a point that you and I, you know, we've talked about a lot in the past is that you can observe in, in a student in your class that who's completely checked out from the educational program of school, that they find learning somewhere else in their life. Right. And they engage in authentic learning and, and pretty powerful learning sometimes 
and it's it's completely self-motivated, completely self-directed. And that's where learning, it's, it's school displaces learning in many cases to outside of school. But then the question is, well, what are these eight, hour, eight hours a day for then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm, I'm starting to think learning loss, right, that, that term that we're dealing with, it, yeah. it's really an oxymoron. <laughs> when we talk about learning, we shouldn't be talking about compelling students to remember things they don't want to remember. Like that's <laughs> right. <laughs> like how is that considered learning? No, learning is, yeah. is the is the thing like you're saying, it's this natural process that is unstoppable. And if it happens at school, that's great. A lot of times it doesn't happen at school. And that's unfortunate that we're putting so many people through school where where we're using this rhetoric of learning and education. And we're not necessarily bringing forth a child into society in a way that prepares them for society. I I almost (laughs) I almost want to separate learning now from education. Yeah. Where education is the process by which society imparts its legitimate goals. And learning is this other thing that happens naturally and totally individually. Yeah. And can make a lot of decisions for itself. So, so over the summer and over quarantine, everybody everywhere learned all sorts of stuff, stuff, yeah. <laughs> stuff maybe, maybe they didn't want to learn, but the experience of life forced them to learn. And so it wasn't right. like a, a passion. It was a necessity. But then I'm sure right. there was plenty of pursuing of passion. But, but what didn't yeah. happen <laughs> over, over the summer and over over COVID, what didn't happen was schools did not throw a bunch of facts at students and make students yeah. practice a bunch of skills that they don't care about and right. test them on that to see if they learned it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or if they retained it, I should say. Right. Um, yeah, that, that didn't happen. So you should expect schools to have to spend some time forcing facts and skills back into students who don't want to retain those facts and skills because they don't want to learn those facts and skills. Yeah. Not sure what to do with that, except that I don't want to call it. I just don't want to associate learning with education and then not in a bad way, but just to point out that no learning is lost over over any of this. Yeah. Yeah. I I think could call it productivity loss. If we keep in mind that this productivity is not from the point of view of the child, but per, from the point of view of the system that's trying to create, produce certain factory-like output, right. you could call it efficiency loss. But also that's yeah. only from that point of view of, of, that, of that system. It's only learning loss when you have in mind an assessment or a particular standard that the student has in their future, right? That they're going to be facing this assessment or, or this standard. And that's perfectly fine if the assessment is completely in the interest of the student and can be shown to be a useful measure of of something valuable for the student. Or if that standard is something that's put into place that is completely aligned with the potential and the the direction, the path of growth and learning of the student. But otherwise, it's just going to be, in my mind, immediately suspect yeah. this standard or, or assessment that's that's going to be put into place. And going back to the, you know, I think your example of a person learning basketball is appropriate here, again, just to, to kind of put it into perspective, is that if you have a person that wants to play in the NBA because they, they just feel called to that, like this is what, you know, they're meant to do 
from in some way. And then as soon as they start moving in that direction, someone comes in and sets up a whole system of benchmarks and <laughs> assessments for that right. person. You would say, like, who are you and <laughs> what makes you think that you have the expertise to set up this system and that it's going to be more beneficial for this person than their own, you know, self-directed or working with a coach, with someone who's who's perfectly attuned to where they are and where they're trying to get. Like some third party legislative body coming in and, and saying, okay, anyone who wants to play professional basketball, at this age, they need to be doing this. At that age, they need to be doing that. And we're going to come in and assess them. And these the results of these assessments are going to affect ultimately <laughs> whether they, they have that opportunity or not. Right. And they're not going to be, it's not going to be like how well they do in games and like some natural, authentic assessment. We're going to run them through drills. Yeah. <laughs> the basketball player who's trying to be in the NBA would have no summer slide. Right. That would right. just be yeah. that would just be time for the basketball player to pursue the skills according to what he can do next. Right. Right. And I think so many times the problem that can happen with the assessment and that pressure is is that it's going to test a skill that maybe it seems like you need this other skill to master this other skill first. Like uh, <laughs> my as your gardening knowledge was quickly exhausted my basketball knowledge is going to be quickly exhausted <laughs> here <laughs> but but let's say that i think the way to clarify what i'm saying would be uh, you you might suppose that a basketball player has to be able to <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of anything that basketball players have to do. You mean like dribbling, shooting, passing, like those kinds of... Yeah. <laughs> I guess they have to do those things. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to go back into like my... Like when I played basketball when I was six. I'm trying to think through all these drills that they ran us through, yeah. which was fine. You know, you want yeah. you want to be drilled on basic things like the pass, the bounce pass, pivoting, you know, yeah. the rules of the game and how to move the ball around the court. Uh, right. What do you have to do? And I think it would be easy to suppose that uh, there's a, a right progression to learning these things, or at least like a non-arbitrary progression. Yeah. But what that's not going to do is it's not going to pick up on a, like if you're just completely married to that progression, then you might not pick up on a, a, a child's skill that he himself feels and, and made him want to like start doing basketball. Like for instance, if the, right. if the child, you know, in, in like pickup games just with like a really important presence for the defense. But yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not doing the basketball <laughs> things. Okay. I'm yeah. making another mark. Okay. It's my turn. <laughs> I have to say something. <laughs> I've got it. Here we go. Okay. All right. I, and I think the basketball example and thinking through the the physical education uh, gives us a good sense of how the individual desire has to be there and, and, and can be assisted by a coach. And an ultimate goal can be considered, but that ultimate goal shouldn't be uh, invalidated by sort of arbitrary measures along the way. Right, right. Uh, so, so, I mean, you 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 can imagine, and I'm sure there are, I don't know a lot about basketball, and <laughs> I know as much as you do about gardening. Right. I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I imagine that there's players in the NBA 
who are not uh, fully rounded out and or maybe right. uh, have a really strong ability on offense or on defense or certain positions on the court uh, right. with ball movement. Uh, not all the players are the same. And part of the the, the joy of watching the game is probably to right. – and, and, really getting into the coaching of the game is probably learning to work with those kinds of uh, different abilities and, and bring them together in harmony. The team element of the game. The, yeah, the team, team element. Team sport, of right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I wonder why we as teachers, when, when, when students come back, I wonder why it's so difficult to try to develop the strengths, recognize where the weaknesses are, talk to the students about addressing those weaknesses, talking to them honestly, uh, but yeah. in, in a humane way, to seeing them as not subhuman, uh, then right. then I think that you'll get a better response. But <laughs> unfortunately, we don't trust the kids at all. And so we we tend to question what they're doing over the summer. Right. We question what they're doing with all of their free time. And we, yeah. I think it, it comes and we with distrust. A lot of, we really have a, a lot of suspicion that they're wasting suspicion. Their time. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and John, <laughs> this reminds me of <laughs> of of my experience with dentists throughout the years, as as <laughs> really? someone who who spent three and a half decades of not doing a good job of taking care of my teeth. I was lectured from the earliest <laughs> age I can remember about how yeah. I was doing such a poor job <laughs> with my <laughs> flossing right. or well, right. brushing pattern. And it wasn't until, it, I mean, it wasn't until some some difficulties uh, with my teeth and, and then changing dentists that I finally got enough experience in life. And I found, <laughs> I found a dentist who didn't really like beat me over the head about <laughs> right cavity and yeah. and just that you're not prioritizing your your dental health as as much as <laughs> right, that, he thinks yeah, you and, should and and they're like it's just I remember so many times just two minutes a night just two minutes a night I'm like that's that's a tough two minutes for me <laughs> like, <laughs> right I, I don't know why but now I'm like flosser you know I got the water pick you know I'm brushing <laughs> right <laughs> like I take really good care of my teeth now I mean experience yeah. and then and then. Experience plays a huge role in it, but also getting a dentist that doesn't just lecture me because I think when you get that lecture and that suspicion that you're just not doing things well, you immediately yeah. want to assert your independence and be like, yeah, right, I guess you right. can you can say all this to me and you can sub <laughs> subdue me here while I'm sitting in front <laughs> right. of you in this vulnerable yeah. position. But let me show you right. where the real power is. The, the real power is <laughs> right, completely right. ignoring you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I imagine plenty of students feel the, uh, a similar way and like you're sitting in a dentist chair, it's vulnerable and you got to put up with the lecture, <laughs> but, but. Right. You're powerless. You, yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to re, you have to reclaim the power over your own life. Right. And, right. uh, it, I mean, I, I almost feel like it wasn't until I found a dentist who didn't care what I did with my teeth right. that I was <laughs> right, able to right. change my habits. Yeah. Yeah, like exactly. Like I would say those the previous dentists were counting on the power of shaming, the power of right. humiliation, <laughs> right. the power of yeah. exploiting your your vulnerability. Like this is probably the the time where you're most regretful about lack, you know, how your lack of <laughs> taking care of your teeth, what position it's putting you in, right? So you're in a very vulnerable position. And then the other dentist is someone who sees your dental health, maybe, you know, I don't know if this is giving too much credit to the wisdom of that dentist, but <laughs> like if we, <laughs> we assume that he sees that your teeth are one part of your life, you have a whole life, 
and he respects right. your, you know, like, hey, if there's you got other things going on, you know, besides, you know, brushing and flossing, I respect that. Like right. you're a human being, and <laughs> you have the, right. you have the the right to to prioritize. But let me just, you know, just let you know this is what it would take to keep this from happening. Just giving you that information and respecting your ability as a human being to process that, put it in the context of your life, and make a decision about what's what's good for you and what's in your interest. And we definitely do not give this respect and assumption, of this dignity to children, I would say. Like, we assume that they're unable to, at any level, I'm not saying, of course, you know, we don't let kids choose everything, <laughs> right. right? Like, and prioritize everything in their lives. Like, of course not. But I would say you would have to give them that space as much as possible. Like, that, they deserve that, the benefit of the doubt. Well, and I, I think the reason this, this, this shame thing comes in so much is because at a level, there's a, a level where the educators understand that the students are always having to choose whether or not to care about the subject that the educator yeah. is so interested in. Right, and, right. And I feel this keenly, like even when we're talking about this and, and you might get the impression that I'm all for just like throwing school out, like I have this real hang up with this idea that someone might not care about literature enough, you know, it's like, yeah, right. because, because, it, you know, because it means so much to me, I, I mean, I know, I know how it feels to, to, to want to give that to all the, all the students who you encounter, but just, <laughs> it's unfortunate yeah. that, that students aren't getting it at all sometimes because, because we're not trusting, we're not trusting them to prioritize. And, yeah, and really yeah. when we're not doing that, <laughs> we're not just affecting the students. We're also training them on how they're going to treat other people because right. it's, yeah. all, all yeah. those mean dental hygienists were in school one time and they learned, <laughs> they modeled yeah, their, exactly. their lecture, I think on, on some some mean teacher they had. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. They said, why did you wait till the last minute to start working on your project? Right, you had, right. I you see you tried to, to brush this. with baking soda right before you came. <laughs> you, you think we wouldn't notice? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. One thing I struggle with, and, and I'm sure this comes through in our, in our conversations, is that there are times where my discomfort with the way education works and with, with schools reaches the point where I feel like I'm against school. Like I, I just, like you, you, you know, you said, like, I feel like school should just be abolished. Right. But that's not the case. That, that's not exactly, that's not really how I feel. I believe, believe that school is, is an important thing. Education is, is, is crucial in the society. The distaste that I have is, is just to what extent the way it could be done and the, the benefit that it could have that that place in in our culture and society is being taken up by this this monstrosity that has been created and and it it justifies holding that place through this rhetoric that doesn't reflect the true operation of school and the true effect that that it's having and the true harm that it's having a lot of times on on children yeah yeah it, and and that's that's obviously what we have to call attention to that's what we're trying to call attention to right i mean that's and i think it gets it i feel like it's felt more and more keenly each year you know it's not just the teacher a lot of times it's the system that the teacher exists in the teacher has fewer opportunities to allow a child to develop according to a, a certain pace that the teach the teachers are essential in recognizing this individual moment that any child is in and when right. the teacher loses complete freedom to right. adjust curriculum according to a child uh, 
then yeah. or or maybe is the teacher is forced to adjust the curriculum in a specific way because the child has a specific diagnosis. I mean, these things yeah. they might seem helpful, but really what they're doing is is they're 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 making the child a problem to solve instead of seeing the child a a human being going through a natural and individual growth. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, and when the child is this problem that needs to be solved, this thing that needs to be reformed, then the teacher becomes a problem that needs to be solved, right? Right. And then when the teacher is a problem that needs to be solved, then the administrator, you know, if he's not solving that problem, he becomes a problem, right? And if (laughs) the administrator is not solving the problem, the school becomes a problem. And it really starts with the freedom of the individual student and child that once that is curtailed and, and limited, then everyone all the way up this chain of, of education experiences the same thing. And, and so it's necessary that the teacher needs to have freedom. Or it, also, it goes the other way, too. Actually, this is, it starts at the top because why would the child's freedom be limited, right? It's because right. somewhere at a much higher level, it's been decided that this is the program, this is the very strict program that children need to be, that needs to, needs to be imposed on children. And so then the the school becomes responsible for doing that. And then the administrator is the one who's responsible for implementing that plan. And he must he has to find he or she has to find a way to get the teachers to, to do that. And when you take the freedom away from the teachers, that's the last barrier that stands in the way. This is when we're talking about the teacher as the mediator between the you know the freedom of the individual and the expectations uh, and of, of the group. Is that's the last place where this can happen, where someone can stand up and say, I'm going to give this child space and freedom to develop, or right. I'm not going to. Right. Yeah. So, John, let me ask you, <laughs> I ask you to do something that we that we have not done yet. I want you to give a uh, teacher tip here <laughs> to, <laughs> to any sure. teachers, any teachers who the kids are coming back from summer and it seems like they've lost some knowledge uh, some skills that yeah. were imparted are no longer there. What should your what should the teacher's reaction be? <laughs> I would say, well, my simple answer is don't worry about it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> but a, a more nuanced answer, I guess, is to figure out exactly why is this a problem. We have to ask ourselves, is this a problem for the student? And if it is, why? Is it because there's some test coming up? Is it because there's some it's going to limit their opportunities in some way? Is it a problem for the teacher because now the teacher's job gets more difficult? They have greater burden. And and then what's causing that? Is it the assessment? Is, is it the expectations, the standards? Is it going to hurt the efficiency of the program, the the productivity of it? All these questions are important. And if, if it's someone who believes that our approach to this has any credibility, then they would see that for that most important thing, it's not a problem. The most important right. thing, which is the, the individual development of that student, really all it is is an indication of, it's a sign, it's some information about the, the priorities of that student, right? right? That and how whether or not this seems like something important to them or not, like for for example, if they come back having forgotten some grammar knowledge, for example, you give them a quiz to see if they can identify different types of clauses and 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 phrases and parts of speech, and they can't, then I guess you just have to ask yourself like how important is it that they know this stuff <laughs> really, and why right right so i I appreciate your nuanced answer, but I'm going. <laughs> I think we should I think we should leave teachers with with the the first answer lingering. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about <laughs> like, it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the best really. That puts you in the best position of actually 
doing something beneficial for that child. Right. <laughs> just say, right. okay, no And problem. humane. <laughs> and and, and humane, dignified. Yeah, yeah like it, it right. restores so many things uh, in the relationship if you respect the child's decisions that, that, yeah. uh, that he or she made over any sort of break and and schooling. Yeah. And you know what? If that child is, is forthcoming and and honest and transparent about that, I would even applaud them and make sure that they realize how, how good that is, how, and that they need to preserve that. Yeah. And yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that we need to reward the, the virtues that the, that the children display and yeah. do nothing but reward. No, not not attach on some sort of. I appreciate your honesty. Now you need to go get to work. (laughs) You know, right, right, right. It's uh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, the yeah. We should clearly express the value of of those things that a certain honesty that they possess. We we need to. There shouldn't be any ambiguity about how valuable that is. Right. And and even about like this is more important than than that. This is really crucial because yeah, we don't want to send the message that being able to identify, you know, or analyze the the grammar of a sentence is more important than, you know, for example, like to give another example, spending the summer thinking about life, for example, or like right. if this if this pandemic has caused someone to reflect on on priorities in life, because if it comes in the way, let's say a, a high school student, it comes in the way of those things that up until this point, they've just unquestioningly assumed were the most important things. And now those things are impossible. A lot of, for example, high school seniors going through the pandemic, I'm sure were confronted with the fact that this most special year of their high school career and all of the rituals and milestones and everything that that take place in it are now been have now been taken from them. Right. And maybe they spend time reflecting on that and it and it causes some actual real thinking and learning. It results in in some real insights into into life. Let's say there was a real drop off in their performance, uh, right. even more than what senioritis normally accounts for. Then instead of lecturing them about that, like you know, if they say, "Well, you know, it just this whole thing just made me really reevaluate life," and you know, I was just been thinking about these things, then. You say, "Oh, good. Forget about that right. other stuff." <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should. Yeah. No, I mean, right. I, yeah. And I think, and that, and here's the other thing: is they'll get there. They 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 will do that on their own if we adults, which we did, uh, don't wring our hands about the fact that all of these milestones are now ruined for the class of 2020 and maybe the class of 2021. This is life. This is what life does. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I I I really think the students would get there in a matter of milliseconds if there weren't so many adults worried about making sure that we have these milestones that we all had and, and that right. you know, somehow something is ruined because you <laughs> your graduation is a socially distanced atmosphere that's that's impersonal. I mean, <laughs> this is I, I don't even know <laughs> why we were so concerned about it and myself included. Yeah, I think it, right. it would have been much wiser much wiser to just say, yes, these things can't happen in this environment. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> right, right. And that's not to say their mental health is not important and in, in all of that. Like, of course, you know, you have to... Right, but their mental health uh, is not... Uh, yeah, their, their mental... <laughs> we can't ever make their mental health linked to things that we think are important. And right, right. We, we've built these things up. And there's certainly, like like you say, there's, there's value in going through a rite of passage. But this is a more significant rite of passage than anything anyone prior has gone through. So everyone should immediately get a sense of solidarity that eclipses the sense of solidarity that others have gotten from just going through a normal 
senior year. Right. Everything right. about this should be doing the things that these ceremonies are supposed to point to. Everything about right. not having that would be uh, more important, uh, more right. significant in their lives. Right. More effective passage into a- adulthood. Right. Right. Their, <laughs> their mental health will be better served by yeah. uh, dealing with reality uh, instead right. of instead of mourning the loss of these yeah ceremonies yeah they have to meet this 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 societal demand for uh for for ceremony and tradition right yeah yeah their mental health shouldn't be linked to that my god <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> yeah yeah but it is and i get it i get it yeah. that it is but it right. is because yeah. the adults make it that way we say okay here's right. finally the point where we're going to respect you as like full human beings. This, this right. is the yeah. moment. <laughs> right. Like, no, we right. can't do that. If we can't do yeah. our graduation, can't respect you like full human beings. I, yeah. I mean, that's why it gets confused and into the mental health uh, mode. I think. Right, because we built a certain framework that we're right. understanding. The, you know, the what's mentally healthy and and necessary for people to yeah for their own view of themselves it's just like school like failing in school and and underperforming in school could lead to depression and anxiety for for an individual right why is that is it because they're really losing out on something that is essentially valuable to them or is it because there's they're existing in this framework and system that tells them you know there's something extremely wrong with you yeah those are that's the question i mean those are that that needs to be in the front of our minds. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we can we can uh, bring the conversation to an end now. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I think that that's well, fine. I mean, if yeah. anyone's still listening, then then yeah, <laughs> I think it'll be understandable that it's hard to wrap this up. Right. Yeah, we yeah. keep we keep bringing up. Up one last issue that we're like, yes, we have to talk about this for 15 minutes. And Yeah. So this is really what I enjoy about our discussions. And our discussion has raised a lot of points and ideas and issues that we're going to have to visit in more detail in, in future discussions. We thank our listeners for joining us again. And as always, Sean, thank you for having this discussion with me. Thank you, John. <laughs>